Hey everyone, this is Opera Box Score. I'm Oliver Camacho, and if this is the first episode you are hearing, welcome. For everyone else, this episode will sound a little different. We are still the same show, we are still going to have a two-minute drill, and shortly we're going to get to the second part of Weston Williams and Harry Rose's spring training on Strauss's Frau ohne Schatten. But first, we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the cultural moment we are in, which affects so many of our colleagues and friends. And we want to point to some of the Black artists in our field who are speaking out. With me are Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. And I'll start by saying that last week, many opera companies put their social media on pause to participate in Blackout Tuesday, a worldwide show of solidarity for Black Lives Matter protesters currently seeking justice for the murder of George Floyd by police officers. But while most arts organizations put up something to show their support, Many felt that specific posts did little or nothing to actually contribute to a solution to the problems of structural and institutional racism within the arts in general and opera specifically. Here's a statement posted by tenor Frederick Ballantyne. He posted this to his Facebook page and we're hoping to get him on the show soon. Dear silent opera American companies, dear silent American opera companies and performing arts institutions, we understand that with a conservative donor base, you're between a rock and a hard place. But please know that when we're able to return to the stage and you all decide to do porgy to balance the books, that you will be engaging black artists. And we will remember that while we raged and screamed and cried and demanded for our right to be unafraid, you did nothing. You used your platforms to distract from our strife rather than doing something as simple as posting a hashtag to show that you care. And when that same Porgy cast appears for the first day of rehearsal and you beam at us while claiming your excitement at having us at your company and the diversity we bring, we'll silently retaliate with false smiles and empty eyes because we will not forget or forgive you. Your silence has shown us that we are nothing more than a cost-effective diversity check in a box. This tone-deaf silence is exactly why our audiences do not reflect our demographics. There is so much work to be done to those allies that have shown your support, thank you. You are seen and appreciated. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag My Life Matters. Hashtag Our Lives Matter. To date, over 50 opera companies have offered a show of support, though not every statement specifically affirmed that Black Lives Matter. Some of the strongest words of support came from Minnesota Opera, who wrote this statement. Let us say loudly, clearly, and from the bottom of our hearts, Black Lives Matter. Tragically, the murder of George Floyd is just one of many infuriating and devastating examples of how racism is inherently woven into the fabric of our country. Here in the Twin Cities and in cities all over the nation, the havoc that injustice and a culture of white supremacy wreak on our communities of color and our nation every day has been made excruciatingly plain to see for everyone. George Floyd should be alive today. Philando Castile, Jamar Clark, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and all the other black people whose lives have been taken at the hands of police misconduct and institutionalized racism in this country should be alive today. Minnesota Opera closed their statement with a call for donations to support black li the Black Lives Matter movement. LA Opera followed their statement by hosting a roundtable with Julia Bullock, Karen Slack, Russell Thomas, Larry Brownlee, and Morris Robinson hosted by Janae Bridges. We would like to play a few especially powerful excerpts from their conversation. 
and encourage you all to seek out the entire video on LA Opera's Facebook page. Why do you think there is such a big reaction now from white people and non-black people about police brutality? I'll start. Okay. I think um, there was something about the image of that white police officer with his knee on that black man's neck in the middle of the street, his face flush against the ground. And this guy had his hands in his pocket like he was taking a stroll through the park. There was something about that image that if you didn't think it was a problem before, that if that image doesn't, doesn't penetrate in some deep and meaningful way, um, you don't have the heart. Because for me, I'm always bothered by it. We all have experienced various forms, varying forms of uh, aggression from police, especially us black men on here. I know for a fact, us black men on here have. Um, but it was there was something about that image that I think the callousness of it, um, he, how he just was so nonchalant about it. And this man is begging and pleading for his life and for just the ability to breathe. I'm ready to like, I just need to say, please, I, I gotta close. It's like, I'm ready to close the door right now. I just, I cannot hear another word. I really can't. I want to see the resources and the money. And, and I'm sorry, I know that arts organizations are struggling in ways, but we all, there are also major endowments here with these places. There's a lot of money in our business. So I actually, I don't wanna, it's, it's very challenging for me to hear about um, any, any place saying that they're struggling to survive right now or that um, their voice must be heard right now. It's like there are actual voices of messages that need to be delivered to us that are not just about making sound in space. Like, right? It's not just about that. I, I've been receiving so many texts and calls from from my white friends and it it's nice it is and i appreciate it and i love them but i i need action you know what does true solidarity look like um and honestly i'm tired of of answering that question <laughs> so i understand if you don't want to answer it um <laughs> I'm 51 years old. I ain't never seen it. So I don't know what it looked like, but y'all can talk about same, same, same it. Same <laughs> I tell all my colleagues on, on this thing uh, that I speak to on a regular basis, I don't want an ally. I'm sorry. You don't need to be my ally. I don't want you to be my ally. I want <laughs> you to do what's right. I, I was talking to Golda Schultz earlier today, and she's like, I cannot relive my trauma and keep explaining my trauma over and over again in order for somebody else to learn something. Um, oftentimes I've not been as fortunate to work in some of the places that you guys been work. I've been working at long and hard, <laughs> you know, and I sacrificed a lot to do this, to do this business, to do this, in, you know, to make my art and, um, you know, carrying the bags, the weight of, of, um, as being a woman, being a black woman, being a full figure black woman in this industry, which everyone might think, oh, it makes sense. But it's somewhere along the line, things shifted. You know, the bar got shifted in different ways. You know, sometimes, you know, you carry that weight into a rehearsal space. You carry that weight on the stage. I mean, the weight of all of the bags that you have to carry. 
you know, and I think that the lack of compassion and understanding is a lack of humanity, a lack of understanding that the same stuff that you're dealing with, the director, the conductor, oftentimes, you know, <laughs> the people that you're working with, you know, that we're dealing with the same things you're dealing with on top of the other bags. And it is a heavy weight, it's a heavy load. And I ask for empathy, I ask for understanding, you know, and um, humanity. Like moving forward, that's gonna be my demand and my expectation. And I will not allow anything less than that. Well, as the only person of color on this panel tonight, I just hope that you will take the time to understand, if, especially if you're a white person, how you might be contributing to a problem of racial inequality in our society and, and in the arts specifically. Read what you can, listen to the people who are talking right now. If you have the ability, donate, stand up for people, participate. Don't be an obstacle in this. If you'd like to hear more from Russell Thomas, we did interview him recently and you can find that interview in our podcast feed. I wish I knew how we could feel it to be free. I wish I could break all these chains holding me. And I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud. Say them clear for the whole wide world to hear. Let's do some spring training for your ears. Welcome back to week two of Frosh, <laughs> Frau Onashatan <laughs> uh, by Richard Strauss. Everyone's excited. Uh, the, the fans are cheering. People are up in the air. People are fainting in the aisle. Audience of unborn children. <laughs> People are protesting in the streets. They love it so much. So. Oh, my goodness. So this is once again your, uh, your lovely escape from all of the things happening in the world. Uh, we're going to continue our deep dive on this strange Strauss opera. If you weren't listening last week, last week we kind of went over the uh, the general sort of feel of the story, the plot. Um, so if you are confused, I would say go back and listen to the last one. But honestly, you'll probably be confused by that too because <laughs> there's a level of buying into the confusion that I am still doing even after listening to this piece. I don't know how many times, but that's what makes it so fun. I love it so much. So today. <laughs> We are focusing on the music of the specific characters because this is, this I think is where the uh, opera shines the most. This is not a unity of action and drama kind of piece. You really, really have to buy into the music that they're singing as well as the words that they are singing. So we're going to start with uh, which character do you want to start with today, um, Harry? Should we start? Why don't we start with the odd one out? Mostly because she's she's first on our list, and that would be um. <laughs> the nurse. The nurse who we talked about um, last time as sort of the facilitator of the, you know, the sorcery and the the magic in this opera is sort of the most direct creator of that, even though everybody's everybody's got some tricks up there. But does she have PPE? <laughs> My goodness. Um, anyway. Um, um 
so yeah, the the nurse the the other thing I was thinking about with this piece is that it almost feels like a um like this is like Frau on a Shotten is like the greatest thing that the Fox system could produce. Like <laughs> from like in terms of German opera, like this is the example you hold up next to all of the others because it's it's truly got a little bit of everything, every mm. every voice type, every you know if there's a, 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 especially German language precedent for any of these characters, they're, they're all existing here. Um, so this, yeah, the nurse is sort of in that vein of like an, an Ortrude character. I think this piece sits kind of interestingly in So it's a contralto role? It's a, it's like a dramatic mezzo role. Okay. Yeah. It, it's a very wide range that we're dealing with, with the nurse. Uh, it's, in terms of quality, it's obviously much, much heavier um, than uh, than Mozart. But when you're listening to the nurse, it really is evocative of the Queen of the Night uh, in terms of how her music interacts with the uh, with the orchestra. Um, she's one of the few characters where when she sings, she kind of controls the orchestra whereas most characters are kind of at the whims of this sort of musical atmosphere. She's the one who kind of like pushes it over um, uh, and, and makes the orchestra kind of bend to her will a little bit. But it's got the same sort of range as the Queen of the Night, not, not the same range, but the same, it, it, they both have lots of range. They have a lot of um, sort of strange jumps here and there. Um, it's a uh, very texty part. I actually think it's the mm -hmm. longest part in the opera. The I mean, and you'll. I think that's correct. Yes, in the excerpt, like that, the amount of words that get put over, especially she's the exposition one. I mean, if she's the one that moves the story literally and actively. Um, everything she says has a has a sort of plot, you know, undertone, as opposed to a, a philosophical one that the rest of the characters have. She she works hard. So let's listen to a little uh, clip of the nurse singing from Act One. Uh, again, all of our clips this week are going to be from the same as last week, the uh, Schulte recording from 1992. <laughs> There you have it, the an, an excerpt from the nurse, and that is in the first scene where she's conspiring to head down to Earth with the Empress to to pick that girl up a shadow. 
Um, <laughs> just grab her a shadow while she's out. Grab her a shadow while she's out. Yeah. Pick uh, up six rolls of toilet paper, a shadow, <laughs> and, some, and some oat <laughs> milk. <laughs> yeah. She's very much, uh, I mean, you can hear the force in her voice and like the, uh, the kind of sinister energy of it. Um, she's very much sort of the, the mover and driver of the plot. She's not really uh, the villain in terms of the overall context of what's happening, but she's the one who's pushing the Empress to take a shadow from a human. She's the one who doesn't like humans. She's very much this sort of um, feminine witch archetype, you know, uh, and she's, she's really neat. She's a lot of fun to listen to. Um, but she's also, like we said before, the odd person out, which is why I think we want to talk next about the uh, pairing, the first pairing of the opera, the emperor and the empress. Yeah, um, we struggled last week with sort of figuring out what to, what we should refer to them as, because they're they're decisively not humans, but they are sort of of this other otherworldly sphere, and you hear that pretty consistently in both mm -hmm. the orchestral writing for them and in the vocal writing.
is the first we hear from the empress, this sort of metaphysical being. She's once a gazelle. Who now was singing in that? That is Julia Varady. And that's ah. actually a beautiful recording. I know. She oh, sounds like pristine in that. So. Yeah. it's. A, I, I actually haven't heard anybody sing that as nicely as that, um, as that recording. The only drawback to this recording is that it also stars a certain tenor who must not be named. Um, but everyone else in the cast is lovely. <laughs> Was it Domingo? Um, but or? yes, the. Oh yes, yes. Okay. You you named him. Okay. Well, I said not to name him. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, what's his name? Harvey Weinstein or something like that. So. <laughs> I don't think Harvey Weinstein has that voice. Um, but in either case. I, it's unfortunate that they would be included in this in any sort of capacity. But uh, musically speaking, let's get back to the subject at hand. The Empress has obviously a very different sort of sound than the nurse. They're both in this sort of supernatural realm, but the Empress and the Emperor, as we'll hear in a moment, are still very much of the supernatural in a way the, nur- the nurse is manipulating the supernatural. They are... Uh, supernatural. So the Empress, if you compare with uh, the nurse, you'll hear that um, at the very beginning of that clip, she follows the sound of the solo violin and she's reacting vocally to like those little sparkling little moments in the harp and the orchestrations. And she does that for a lot of the opera. She doesn't have the same kind of authority musically um, or even as the rest of the characters, but her whole arc is sort of finding herself not only in terms of the plot but in terms of her music yeah, um, very much you get that i mean it is both sort of metaphorical and literal in the text and in the music there's a, a transparency that you know as she becomes more and more fleshed out by the end you have a sort of movement away from this kind of ethereal musical sound high strings very sparse accompaniment to you know her most important lines are spoken, which we'll get to next for, week. For our mm-hmm. audience who may not be as well versed as you guys, um, what other music does that sound like to you? What other type of characters, like from other operas, does that most? Honestly, uh, this is kind of an interesting case because uh, I'm of the opinion that you can really only compare Strauss to Strauss in, okay. in moments like this. Yeah. Um, and this is this is an unusual opera in that it's very much on the border between what we consider early Strauss, i.e. Um, Zalame and Electra, and late Strauss, which is everything sort of post Rosencavalier. I mean, it happened after Rosencavalier, but it's got it's got a lot of the qualities of an aria from the Marshallin or, um, uh, or even, uh, not in vocal range, but like in Sophie. Uh, and you hear a lot of those in this clip in particular, where you have this sort of large, complex soundscape um, while still being emotionally fairly grounded. That being said, this opera also has a lot of really unusual things happening in terms of orchestration. The scale is much bigger, especially when you compare it to really late Strauss operas. Um, and it's very, it's, it's, it's right there on, on the edge. Okay. So it's, it doesn't sound like, Ma- it doesn't sound like Mariette's lead or something like that. It doesn't sound like much, but I, I hear a lot of Ariadne in this, in the way yeah. that not necessarily yeah. the writing for the character, but the way, you know, there's this sort of melancholy to her and a, a sense of kind of existing both with and outside of the gravity of the moment. My, 
favorite part about this opera as a whole, and especially the, the parts of the first act that we've been listening to, is like if you listen to like the eighth notes on the harp beneath her, those go almost the entire time. And it's yeah. a very like, it's almost like a, you know, Steve Reich type thing. Or like if you know Sondheim and you know someone in a tree from Pacific Overtures where the accompaniment doesn't really change throughout the entire song. And it's very much to give you the sense of like, well, this is this is a thought. This is a moment that is sort of getting a vocal expression, but it is not actually take place in time. And I find a lot of that in this opera. And I think that's part of how the music is deployed in this piece in such a unique way. I really love the way it's sort of is kind of the best of both worlds for, of Strauss. It really feels like uh, he really creates a unique atmosphere that you don't really have in his other operas, but is still immediately recognizable as Strauss. What I, I feel like this changes a little bit when we start talking about the emperor, on the other hand. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go ahead and take a listen to a clip from Act Two of the Emperor's Music. And the singer is? Uh, the singer is uh, Placido someone. <laughs> some, some guy named Placido. Peaceful Sunday. What other tenor arias of note are there from Strauss besides Exactly. That? Well, there's the Circe <laughs> entrance from um, from Ariadne when he comes in on the... Eh, this is, this is one of the interesting things, though. Strauss really does have a lot of good moments for traditionally male vocal, vocal types, um, but they tend just to be moments... This is one of the few Strauss operas where the men actually kind of have a chance to 
to shine on a deeper level, um, not just musically, but also thematically. They actually matter to the story. Uh, Barak is probably a better example than the Emperor, but um, I think the Emperor's music is a good way to use, uh, is a good way to sort of call out a difference between this opera and a lot of, of uh, Strauss's other operas, uh, which are very, very dominated by um, sopranos and mezzo-sopranos and pants rolls. And, you know, uh, it's, but by the nature of this piece specifically, it's so much about um, passing down children and relationships between men and women specifically, because, you know, that was the era for it. So is, um, is um, the emperor supposed to be more of like your Siegfried or your Siegmund type voice? He's more of a Siegmund, I think. He's got he, he doesn't ever get the sort of youthful energy. He he's more he reminds me more of a Tristan than anything in terms of how the voice plays with the orchestra, especially in that clip. Um, he is one of the most Wagnerian sounding people in this opera, and that's something I should point out too, is that you know everyone always compares Strauss to Wagner which is accurate to a certain extent, but this opera, by the nature of some of these characters being so, you know, in between that realm of divine and human, um, much like uh, the characters in the ring cycle, they have a lot of resonance musically with how they're constructed and like this sort of distance between, um, uh, distance musically in terms of how their sound world interacts among the more divine characters versus how the sound world interacts between the more human characters. And it's reconciling that, that the opera is moving towards. And that's something that you hear a lot, particularly with the emperor's music, who is, who it just, he absolutely screams Wagner to me. So and he screams in general also. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a, it is a sort of powerful part and it is, I think, definitely standing in, there's something, there's something about this piece as a whole where if you look at a composer like Janacek, who's writing music mm. that feels very non-judgmental of the characters, and then you look at a composer like Strauss, who's trying to pack <laughs> as many opinions and perspectives into the vocal writing for these characters and the orchestral writing as possible. And this is very much a, you know, a... a um, uh, its strength and its vigor and it's supposed to stand in contrast. He's a hunter. He's, you know, he's just strong. And it's, it's interesting to hear. I mean, you compare him to other Strauss's strong women and he's sort of the only example of like a, a you know, the stereotypically strong man mm. that we can find. <laughs> Which I'm sure Oliver is writing down uh, the name of the recording so you can find it later. Uh, but not this one. Not this one. <laughs> he wouldn't want to touch uh, me. So, I would say that uh, I loved loved what you said about uh, Strauss having opinions because this next clip um, is a fight between uh, the dyer Barak, no relation, and um, the wife, uh, who again has no name, uh, and you can hear the fight happening. But by the time you get to the end of this clip. I mean, you will know who won.
I believe it's pretty uh, obvious that, in Strauss's opinion at least, Barack was the winner of that argument. Uh, obviously, they start off very angular, lots of sort of uh, jarring human sounds, but there's a, a point at near the end where Barack's music changes. You start hearing his theme more, uh, more uh, presently, and his music starts to transcend 
the human music a bit. It starts to become more and more like these sort of supernatural characters. And it's like Strauss is saying, you know, this argument is going on, but ultimately uh, Barack is not only right, he's benevolently correct. Uh, It's a very, it takes on a a very sort of philosophical dimension. And it is, I mean, if if you look at sort of the rest of Hofmannsthal's output i mean the his his probably most famous piece besides what he did on the opera is the um the re you know revised version of the everyman play which is about just the ups and downs of a regular old joe and it's performed every <laughs> year at the salzburg festival and it, this you can tell that this is kind of conceived in that um sort of exaltation but also it's measured a little bit of just what it means to be human. I mean, musically, it's very much like the music of Sarastro from The Magic Flute. Uh, it's very much this strong sort of... He's secure in the knowledge, in this moment anyway, that he's correct about what he's saying, and the music agrees with him. Um, but at the same time, what makes this opera interesting is that, it again, it subverts sort of that expectation if you come in knowing magic flute that that you know you think that this person is right and they're going to be right consistently more or less through the entire opera that's not really the case he breaks down he 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 falls to a pretty dark and violent place and he has to find his way back which i think makes it a really interesting commentary on sort of that sorostro archetype weston could you remind us who was singing uh, that was Jose Van Damme, I believe. Jose Van Damme. Oh, I love him. No wonder I like him. Jose Van Damme, yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, one. We got one more clip for you. Uh, it's another duet. This is again uh, the wife and the dyer singing. But this is uh, much later uh, after everything has been essentially taken away from them. They're, um, this is they're, at, right after that. This is like almost the first thing we hear when the curtain comes up after that, what we listened to last week where like the river floods into the room and everybody's Mm -hmm. followed up into the chasm and there's an earthquake. And it's a, it is a, I think you'll find a really interesting contrast in the way their vocal lines intertwine with each other. Um, Now that so much has changed in their personal lives um, as opposed to the, out and out quarrel we heard uh, a little bit ago. Who is singing? Uh, this is going to be um, uh, Jose Van Damme again with Hildegard Behrens.
so Oliver, did that sound like Strauss to you? That sounds like Strauss to me. That is classic Strauss. That's like, ah, Strauss. Yeah. And not the junior. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's mature Strauss breaking yeah. through. Yeah. There's a that's moment, what I think. There's a moment in Rosenkavalier that nobody talks about, but uh, it happens in the second act uh, when, you know, the, the heat is on between Octavian and Baranox. And um, Octavian and Sophie have like this one moment alone and they sing this very short love duet that's much more like rhapsodic and erotic than than the uh, presentation of the rose. Um, and it happens very fast. I think it's like 90 seconds, but it's so gorgeous. It's almost like that duet in Electra between Electra and Chrysothemis. Um, I forget when that happens. It's also in the, in the final scene. Um, I love when Strauss writes like that, when it's just like perpetual intertwining lines that, you know, they each person has their own lane, but those two lanes weave amongst each other so beautifully. So anyway, classic Strauss for me. And this opera goes to pains to, I feel like, set these scenarios up that feel very total and overwhelming just so he can take us out of them mm, in these mm-hmm. certain moments. And it... It, you know, it's a disjuncture, but it's very satisfying. And it is one of the reasons why I think this piece, despite just how difficult it is to kind of visualize, is much more persuasive when you see it acting. Yeah, it's very much uh, a moment of putting everything away and being vulnerable musically because because at this point i imagine the singers are probably at their least vulnerable because (laughs) it's a hard 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 part but the musical effect is is so naked you know there's no longer it's just the human love uh bringing them back together uh after what has been just an awful awful trial for them yeah, it's very it's very Rosen Cavalier final trio and duet, very de- you know, this sort of detached but emotional feeling that we can only have because of all of the context we've been given. Mm-hmm. And speaking of context, next week, uh, I, I should say, if you've been listening to this little frosh series we've been putting out here and you've absolutely loathed it, you're like, I don't like this opera, I'm never <laughs> gonna listen to it. Save your judgment for part three, because... You will have heard the whole opera by then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because next week we're going to be talking about the finale, which, and I say without any exaggeration, is, in my opinion, the best opera finale ever written. And it's absolutely phenomenal. And it's the entire thing kind of in a nutshell. And you'll definitely want to stay tuned for that right here on Opera Box Score. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The world of classical music fell silent last week to observe Blackout Tuesday in a show of solidarity for Black Lives Matter. Posts on social media from Royal Opera House, Decca Records, Royal Albert Hall, LA Philharmonic, The Met, Boston Symphony, and RCM London paid tribute to the passing of George Floyd and the growing global mass protests. Some, however, were more convincing statements than others. Chief Executive Alex Beard has warned that London's iconic Royal Opera House will not last beyond autumn with its current reserves. 
Beard cautioned that the venue may not last unless there's a significant change to the support uh, the organization receives from the government, as well as a change to social distancing measures. Other venues, such as the Royal Albert, Albert Hall, have expressed a similar predicament, saying that current circumstances would force them to close by April of next year. Anna Netrebko has dropped out of the Met Opera's production of Zalame. According to the Associated Press, she withdrew from the opera scheduled for the 21-22 season, saying that the role was, quote, not right for her. Netrebko will return to the Met in her role debut as Abigail in Nabucco and will take on the title role of Turandot. Chicago's own Lyric Opera will present several performances on local radio station WFMT. Broadcasts will kick off sun Saturdays at noon uh, Central Time, and you can view the schedule and hear the broadcast at WFMT.org. The Phoenicia International Festival of the Voice has announced this year's live opera staging will be a drive-in performance of Tosca, starring Joyce Elcuri. The August 29th performance will be at Tech City in Kingston, New York. Audience members will drive into parking slots and turn on their car radios. The Vienna State Opera will reopen to the public on Monday following strict coronavirus government guidelines. Only 100 people will be allowed to sit in the audience during a concert, and all performances have been restricted to 70 minutes with no intervals. Guests will also be required to wear a mask during the show. In a column for the academic online journal, The Conversation, University of Melbourne's Caitlin Vincent said that artists should stop giving away art for free. The glut of pro bono performances in the time of COVID is dangerously undervaluing opera, as well as the arts in general. That's her argument. Exit stage right, Belarusian soprano Irina Siegel passed away on March 27th at age 51 from a rare form of cancer. Stephen DeMeo, who worked tirelessly to promote young opera singers as the president of the Goethe Listener Foundation and for other organizations, has died at the age of 89. Italian pianist and composer Marcello Abado passed away on June 4th at the age of 93 as well. And on this day, June 8th, in 1671, it was the birth of the composer Tommaso Albinoni. In 1810, the birth of German composer Robert Schumann. In 1850, it was the premiere of Halevi's La Tempesta in London. In 1859, the first performance of Delibes' L'Omelette à la Follembouche in Paris. In 1929, it was the first performance of Paul Hindemith's Neues vom Tage at the Kroll Opera in Berlin. In 1933, the birth of American baritone Robert Kearns. And even though it wasn't an opera, we thought you should know that in 1937, it was the first performance of Karl Orff's Carmina Burana at the Open House in Frankfurt. In 1953, it was the first performance of Benjamin Britten's opera Gloriana, that classic, at the Royal Opera Covent Garden in London. In 1961, it was the birth of American soprano Kaylin Esperian in Waukegan, Illinois. And in 1968, it was the first performance of Harrison Burt Whistle's opera Punch and Judy in Aldeburgh. And that was your two-minute drill. So that was the Cambridge Singers conducted by 
John Rutter in Concord from the choral dances from Britain's Gloriana. I've never watched Gloriana, but the choral dances are exquisite, <laughs> and I would want to oh, be. I would want to be in that show just to sing in the chorus because they're so gorgeous. It, it does seem to be one of those operas that's just like so British that it doesn't translate well to audiences <laughs> outside of the United Kingdom. Like even for Britain, it's just too much for us to get over here. <laughs> but it does. There's feel- scones everywhere. The, um, <laughs> there are extra U's and all the words. We just don't understand. <laughs> the title character, um, Queen Elizabeth, does certainly feel related to Lady Billows <laughs> in Albert Herring. The same Fox, too. Classic. I'm not mistaken. Classic stuff. So, uh, in terms of the stories for today, I, I, I wanted to obviously, I think, uh, as you could tell from our first segment, um, as, as none of us are African American on this panel, we're trying to make sure that we don't dominate the conversation when it comes to uh, uh, the discussion of, of racism, especially institutional racism in the arts. But I would like to say um, that I think one of the biggest criticisms leveled against opera companies in this time is the fact that a lot of their posts tend to be kind of empty words of support. Uh, And there has to be a realization that there needs to be concrete, specific changes going on in order to make Black artists feel safe uh, supported and to eliminate um, any vestige of racism in your uh, in your companies and in your communities, and that translates to concrete changes on an institutional level, on an administrative level, hiring people of color. Um, and I think it's 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 something that I felt we should point out as being a recommendation, even though we are not necessarily the ones qualified to you know, make that recommendation. I, I want to thank, thank you for saying so. And I have to say this, and I said it recently on another platform. So if you're following me on all of my platforms, I apologize if you're hearing this twice. But you know, I come from a generation uh, where I had to you know, code switch and really assert my Americanness to be a part of the arts that I was so passionate about. And I was willing to do that because I really want, I loved it and I wanted to be, I wanted to play the game, you know. And I am grateful that younger generations uh, are not tolerating it and they're demanding that they are allowed to be them full selves and participate in this art form. Because it's true, if we don't, you know, allow for unique voices, um, our audience is dying. It really is dying. And, um, we see the same struggle happening in society. There's this, you know, there is the segment of society that has power and has control and always has, and they are so afraid of losing it. And um, why are they afraid? Because they know that if they were treated the way, you know, marginalized peoples have been treated, that they would be unhappy. Mm. So at any Mm. rate, um, Matt, were you about to jump in or did you want to change the topic? Well, I, 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 no, I don't want to change the topic at all because I I think it's important to to notice the parallels between what what you're saying in the opera world, and and keep in mind that it applies to all kinds of industries. We are seeing a lot of kind of turmoil in the publishing industry over similar issues of you know who has access to these jobs, who can afford to take a job working at a magazine who can afford to be a new a newspaper reporter, and how much just the systematic society that we currently have today 
feeds into this oppression and bringing the uh, the previous efforts to bring diverse voices into these companies have not been enough and people are are calling out crying out that they have not been enough and we need to do everything we can to listen and amplify and do better so absolutely i work at wfmt and uh, actually the lyric opera rebroadcasts began last saturday i'm sorry i didn't update this story for you um this weekend <laughs> this weekend will be uh, the Turandot, um, which is not my favorite performance, but Amber Wagner is singing Turandot, which, which is really cool. <laughs> she is. She was amazing. I saw yeah. I saw that performance live and, and the production was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she was absolutely phenomenal. Yes. Um, um, there was two casts that year. There was um, Janai, uh, Janai, Janai Bridges, Janai Brugger. Oh, my God. I'm messing Brugger. Up. Janai Brugger as Liu. I think she was in the second cast, but the broadcast was with Maria Gresta, who I actually like quite a bit uh, as the Liu. But the tenor is unfortunate, and I did, you didn't hear me say that. Why? <laughs> um, well, coming we, out with the, the knives there, yeah, Oliver. Last week was the Cozy, which had a friend of the show, Andrew Stenson. He was gorgeous in that. And um, Ana Maria Martinez, who actually is a really good Fjordaligi. And not that I would expect any less, because I think her Mozart's great, but I was just really surprised at how how much she has that role, you know, in her voice. Um, and uh, what's her name? Mariana Crabasa as uh, Dora mm-hmm. Bellum, which was cool. And Joshua Hopkins. It was a really good cast, actually. Yeah, it really was. So anyway, Lyric Opera Chicago is no longer doing live broadcasts. Um, well, nobody's doing live broadcasts right now, but they, <laughs> they ceased their relationship with uh, recording their, um, their season last, last year. So this it was one, it was one of the more contentious parts of their of their union negotiations when the contracts were up about a year and change ago, as as I recall. So these rebroadcasts are from two years ago, way back in the good times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are we going to call it? I mean, like pre COVID or like before the quarantine, pre pre core? I don't know. Pre apocalypse. Yeah. Pre- <laughs> Speaking of the apocalypse, uh, the Royal Opera House. Wow, that was that was something. Seeing that they uh, they uh, they expect the the fact that you know the like a, com- a company with the name Royal in the title is running out of money is such an odd concept to me. Uh, but it does it does speak to how um, you know with the current situation progressing as it is, these are just not um, you know. This is beyond the worst case scenario for a lot of companies, especially large opera companies who have been who've been able to resist a lot of, uh, you know, having to make a lot of changes over the past few decades. Um, and certainly for them to survive, there's going to have to be some level of government intervention. But there's also going to have to be some level of ingenuity, I think, on on behalf of companies uh, right now. Uh, in order to see how they can conserve funds and keep things going, um, and you know what may end up being the long term, uh, and I would be I, I, obviously the situation in Britain is a very sort of different situation than it is here in the U.S. But we know that um, in the U.S., I'm I'm almost positive there's less of a safety net for arts organizations like this. So I'd be really interested to see. Um, how companies are talking about this behind closed doors and what, if any, plans they have 
to save themselves essentially um, I, I, as this continues. I do think you're I do think you're on to something that um, the alarm system that they have in the UK to ask for more funding is probably going to be very different than mm-hmm. uh, how mm-hmm. our alarm system goes because who you know. <laughs> <laughs> the government is going to be listening to them it's in like the, the United States. It's like when, you know, there's a fire in your room and you go up to the uh, the fire alarm and you pull it and it comes off the wall and it's just like a piece of plastic that's been taped on with no alarm at all. Has that happened to you before? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, had a brief arson phase, but we won't talk about that on the air. <laughs> So we don't even need um, to, to drag Anna to Trepko because there are enough people out there who are doing that for us. But um, yeah, like you didn't know that Zalami would be right for you. Like, did you just never hear of the opera until you like had a chance because you're home for the quarantine? Like, oh, I should really look into this opera that I'm supposed to be singing next year and realize that. that- <laughs> you should probably do that. <laughs> I, I feel like Anna's just in her, her own little world and she has been for the past, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Probably going back to her times in Princess Diaries too, which I must always (laughs) remind everyone she did star in. (laughs) That's not a joke. Watch Princess Brides 2. So Weston, if you had to choose one opera that premiered on June 8th, which one would you want to see? Oh, 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 so many good ones. Punch and Judy. <laughs> I've, I I, had never actually heard this opera or even heard of it. I've been trying to get more into Burt Whistle, but yeah. this one is just you, not on my radar You yet. missed that comment, Matt, because before you came on, he said, I'm in my Burt Whistle phase right now, so I should really get to this opera. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our Burt Whistle phases occasionally. Among us. Yeah. Uh, um, also, you know, Carmina Burana, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, Every teenage boy in the world, you know, loves Carmina Burana in, so, in some way. So, you know, that's a good one, too. Just a, a good day. And don't forget about Schumann. We love Schumann. Yeah. Well, Schumann's Happy not Happy birthday. Opera. All right, you guys. <laughs> uh, it's time for Good Call, Bad Call. So I meant to mention this last week, and it seems like I'm too late. But our um, friend of the show, Rachel Willis Sorensen, she has the hashtag Real Opera Life School uh, that's already begun, um, and I think it's already full. I don't know how many students she's taking, but she just announced on Facebook that she is admitting more students in July because of popular demand. So if you, like us, think that she is an amazing singer and is really fun and has some really great advice, check out Real Opera Life School. And you can email Olivia, who is uh, the administrator for that, Olivia at realoperalifeschool at gmail.com. So the address is realoperalifeschool at gmail.com, and you are going to be addressing Olivia. And you could just go to Rachel Willis, Rachel Willis Sorensen's social media and figure it out yourself. You don't need me to tell you. My good call goes to our listeners. Uh, coming off of a bad call of the Metropolitan Opera streaming Otello over their live stream this weekend, which was Yikes. possibly one of their most tone-deaf choices that they could have chosen. Uh, I found a number of change.org petitions that are uh, in support of just trying to make noise so that the Metropolitan, so that they hear that this kind of thing is not okay. So I support our listeners in the show activating. Let's make some noise. Black Lives Matter. And on that note, I've got a call from Ashley. She says, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell 
apologized for not, quote, listening to black players when they spoke out about racism the day after a host of black players called for the league to take a stand. Uh, Ashley appreciates it, she guesses, but she wishes that he'd straight up apologized directly to Colin Kaepernick, but uh, whatever. At least Drew Brees was more contrite. Cue Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams, too much, too little, too late. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, which usually plays here, is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest, Harry Rose. For Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, June 17th, with more opera news and more hot takes. Join us then, and remember, Black Lives Matter.